I'm Trudy Kerr and welcome to The Interviewer. In this series, I talk to artists, campaigners, men and women of influence, musicians, performers, sportsmen and women, politicians, businessmen and women, and anyone who shapes the fabric of our society. Herman Gregg started his award-winning journalism career over two decades ago as a journalist with the Times of Malta in 1997. Herman set up Malta's first men's magazine with The Times. He's run The Sunday Times. He's presented on television and online with Times Talk. He's held the position of head of media, deputy editor, online editor, and is now editor-in-chief for The Times of Malta, as well as correspondent for German news agents, Deutsche Pressagentur. Herman is also an actor, theatre director, and a whiskey lover, which elevates him to the status of fabulous. Welcome, Herman. Thank you for having me. But I was never a good actor, mind you. Now that's okay. As long as you like whiskey, that's everything good. else is forgiven. We, we, we can uh, drink and make merry then. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on. But let's kick off with the fact that you've had a long and esteemed career in journalism covering the past 24 years now, news, news reporting and news digesting has changed dramatically over the past two and a half decades. So what are you seeing as the significant changes in the industry, in news reporting from when you first started? Very simple. If you don't embrace technology, if you don't embrace change, you will become irrelevant in this industry. You need to know how your audience is changing, how people are digesting, uh, embracing new technologies. And you also need to understand that whatever worked last year might not work this year because your readers are changing. And I think if we're, uh, we need to be honest with ourselves, you know, you can be the best journalist in the world, but if you don't know how to tell a story an evolving audience, you could be writing yourself out of a job. It is important that you remain true to, to your principles and values. You're probably going to be hearing me talk about values. It's an old-fashioned word, but I believe in it. It's important to be not to screw up, try not to screw up, uh, because reputation is everything in this industry. But when you started in 1997, I'm assuming that printed press had a much, much greater presence. We didn't have uh, the internet. We didn't have social media back then. So everything was print-based. So apart from the fact that print has now fallen away to some extent, what are the other key changes that you're seeing in people's behaviour of how they digest news? People are, are becoming very impatient. You know, you cannot know about a story which, has, which is of national importance and leave it maybe for tomorrow, for the weekend. People want the news and they want it now. And that is the most significant change I've seen. When I joined the Times in 1997, you used to walk into the newsroom, uh, have a meeting, and then start working on stories which you need to deliver by 6, 7 p.m. And the editor will just sign them off and you'll see them the next day in the paper. Nowadays... Uh, I walk into the newsroom. By the time I've reached the office, we're already discussing among the editors uh, what stories we need to cover now and what needs to go online in the next two and a half minutes. That's incredible. It's the truth. Uh, it's the way it's changing. It's very interesting in a way, because if you probably had to put me in a print environment where it's just you're doing a story for tomorrow's paper, 
I would probably be seeking a job today. Because why? Because it is exciting to be delivering the news now and to deliver it in so many ways. You don't need 800 words, necessarily 800 words, 1,000 words to tell a story. You can say it in a one-minute clip. You can uh, do it in an interview. You can do it in, in, through a podcast, as you're doing. And it's wonderful to be, to be consuming news through these different channels now. Well, that nicely leads me on to the next question, because one of my concerns is that we are getting so much news and so fast that that 800, 1,000 word count is reduced to a couple of dozen lines. And then that's reduced to a headline. We scroll through, I myself, I go to the, the BBC and I scroll through the headlines and I'll read what I want to read because the headlines, but if it's more, it can take me more than a couple of minutes, then I'll probably not stay. I mean, that's, first of all, as a journalist, that must be a huge amount of pressure. But on top of that, does that mean as an audience, we're missing out the important detail? Sometimes we do, um, and I fear that because of this, now I'm going to probably contradict myself, there is still the beauty of writing an 800-word story full of detail, full of interesting quotes and anecdotes. I still believe there is uh, a need for that, uh, the long-form journalism. Um, I believe there is an even need for, for this kind of documentary style of journalism. But you need to make sure it is the right story for that kind of uh, medium. It's not always easy. Um, sometimes myself, I'm, I'm struggling. I mean, you mentioned Time Stalker, you know, you can't just get a TV program and put it online because online audiences are very uh, impatient. They want the story and they want it now. How is it best to tell the story? And this is what we discuss in the newsroom meeting every morning when, okay, this goes online. This can hold the print. This might be our front page tomorrow. And you know what? While we're at it, tell our video editor to, to come up with a one-and-a-half-minute explainer of this complex story. It's scary, but it's also interesting. Going back to, to what I was saying before, does that mean that any of the important details are missed if it is a one-and-a-half-minute video story or if it's a, an edition of Time Talk that has to be reduced down? Do, you, do you we will, miss out on the detail? Y yes, you do miss out on some of the detail, but this is why... Uh, the media is so exciting because you can still write that piece for uh, the paper and you can still have an explainer, one and a half minute explainers. But what I'm getting at with that 90 second video explainer is probably getting people who never picked up a paper in their lives, people who don't want to read at length. And these are new audiences. And this is why the biggest growth we've seen as times of Moulton the last, uh, I would say, three, four years is in the 25 to 34 category. So you've got young people who would never bother reading a paper, and now we are seeing that growth among the, that particular age segment. And for me, that is the biggest success. So does that mean that print is dead? Because print is not what it used to be. I'd be lying if I said print is, is growing and print is the best thing. No, it isn't. Print is facing some huge challenges. But I still think there is life in print. We still sell papers. Sunday paper is still, to the extent that we actually keep the best stories for the Sunday paper. We often keep them because there is an audience there. They've shrunk. Uh, less people are buying newspapers. I, I still believe you have that captive readership through a newspaper. When you go online, you're very tempted to have multiple tabs open. You just, I do it myself all the time. I'm going scrolling through about 10 different pages in the next minute. With a paper, you're there, you have a captive audience, you have to read it from A 
does it. Which generation are doing that? Because you just mentioned the the younger generation, twenty five to to thirty five, and that 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 is a growing audience online. Who who's still buying the paper? Mainly, uh, I would say people fifty and over. And uh, you will also find it. This is quite interesting. You know, a lot of cafes will supply the paper. It's there in a cafe. I go have a coffee in my favorite Slima coffee shop, and the Times of Malta is there. And there are different people reading it, including twenty-five-year-olds. Which is brilliant. Well, but twenty-five-year-olds always makes me think of social media, because social media has kicked off. I remember having a conversation with an influencer not long ago, and I talked about when I went into my career, there wasn't even the internet. There was no such thing as a website. There was no such thing uh, as uh, as email. I was the same year as you that I started my career. Um, and she said to me, what, you mean there was no social media? No, there was no, I mean, things have accelerated so fast. But social media also plays an incredible role in how we digest information. But it doesn't have the same restrictions or maybe even the same accountability that press has. Absolutely. You can say whatever you want on social media. And this is why... I would say social media is the biggest asset for journalists. It is also the biggest enemy of journalism. Let, let, let's face it, you, you've got leaders like Donald Trump that have really, you know, milked this concept. What do you go? You go for, you know, statements like, oh, we now have alternative facts, fake news, whenever people don't like this fake news. And you just get uh, this businessman who will buy so many ads on Facebook to feed the fact that the Times of Malta, or anybody else, is fake news. And this is my truth. And no, I am only doing this because I have the money, and I'm selling you this idea on Facebook. And that's a very dangerous concept. Because you mentioned Donald Trump just there, and of course this is one of the biggest stories of 2020. Uh, Donald Trump was a huge user of Twitter. Twitter then eventually decided to, to ban him. He was banned from all social media, and which has affected his voice incredibly. Does that happen in Malta? No, of course it does. There are so many people who are... We've got ministers, we've got politicians that are um, sharing their um, propaganda online blatantly. And sometimes they're using your own tax money to do it. And I think that is ridiculous. So how do we fight that, though? Because everybody's entitled to be on social media. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is why we, have, we need uh, media literacy in this country. We need, like most other countries, you need to try to understand the difference between fact and fiction. That what you, when you go on Facebook, you are essentially going on a commercial product. And uh, uh, Facebook is a big entity which uses algorithms to give you not the truth, but w what it thinks you might like to read, because it is actually following what the pages you're opening on your, on your online. So you really need to be very careful. And this is why we really need to understand the difference between the traditional media and social media. It is hugely important for our generation. You've got ministers going on and using social media and saying whatever they want. How do we stop this? How do you as Times of Malta, or you as Herman Grech, how do you stop this? It's very difficult. It's very difficult because we cannot compete with Facebook and Google uh, commercially and uh, with regards to influence. Now, we are known to be the most influential news organization in Malta. Uh, I believe uh, that's thanks to the legacy of being an 86-year-old uh, news institution. At the end of the day, we are also uh, fighting a big monster, and this monster does not have any owners. You don't know 
what's behind Facebook. You don't know what's behind Google. Yes, sometimes we struggle, but I can only hope that we can try to inform and uh, hopefully digital literacy needs to be taught from a very young age because it's not going to go away. But you just need to understand if you're clicking on that link on Facebook, the story you might be getting might be from some garage in Moldova by some 16-year-old who is being paid to fuel an idea. And he is getting rich by the minute while we are paying our journalists to try to get to the closest thing to the truth. Do we screw up? Of course we do. But I think we really are trying to give you the most precise information. Is Malta that gullible? Are we, as a nation, are we that gullible? Are we, would we believe these stories that are being fired to us through social media? Where does it come where people come back to you and say, hey, listen, this is the benchmark, this is... I think, I think we are as gullible as uh, you find uh, people in the UK, in Germany, France. It happens everywhere. Yes, there is a huge problem that if one minister says something, that it must be true, and you are the ones who have an agenda and you want to bring down our favorite minister and blah, 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 and we keep hearing this every single day, and we, it is very difficult to fight literacy, to fight, to, fight, to, to inform somebody that, you know what, what you're reading there um, about on Facebook, on Twitter, might not be the truth. Um, just try, it's very easy, just verify it. Go to the nearest thing, ask. There are credible sources. It happened to us during COVID. I can't begin to explain the problems we had in the beginning of just explaining the basics of COVID. We, were not, we are not the experts. We are just disseminating the information. But I was just trying, I told the journalists from now on, we just listened to the scientists, we just listened to the people who, to the doctors, to the people who are involved in this business. Stuff were being told, sent to us. This happened and listen to this and then COVID travels in this way and all that. I said, we now have, you know, have this role of an, a department of information almost. We are talking now coming up to potentially an election here in Malta in the next six to 12 months. And Malta has been through a very challenging time. Malta, over the past number of years, has been the first in some great positive moods, the first in the LGBTQI law and human rights. We've been the first in financial services, iGaming industry, bringing so much revenue to the island. And then, unfortunately, in the last number of months and maybe years, we've seen us hit the news for very different reasons, which must have been difficult to report. And of course, you need to get to the bottom of all of these stories. Where do you see the future for Malta at this time? Where do you see us heading? Are we heading in a, in a positive direction or have we yet to unravel the depth of what has potentially been happening over the last number of years? It depends what you're referring to, because if you talk about politically, in the financial services or in the environment, I will give you different answers. I was a staunch supporter of, of the EU membership. I, w I really wanted my country to, to be in the EU. I still do. And one of the reasons I wanted that was that we open our minds. That we, we, we learn that there's a world out there uh, and we'll actually interact and we travel more and learn new things in new countries and we see more cultures. But I'm scared to say that I, I think we've learned almost nothing. 
Um, we, you know, you get to a situation where um, we are still doing our utmost to remain as we were. It doesn't mean that what we had in the past was wrong, but it's because I really thought we'd open our minds that we stop this bipolar situation that I've, you know, I've voted PN all my life, so I have to keep voting PN all my life. I voted uh, for this minister and I'm going to keep voting, come what may, irrespective of whether he's embroiled in the biggest scandal ever in this country. And for me, that shows we haven't really learned much. I was hoping, you know, I want to join the EU, hoping we can realize that the environment matters. And look at around you, this place is screwed up, totally. Building stuff we don't need, knowing the country's hit a brick wall already. We're going to end up with thousands of apartments, white elephants, and we can never remove them. We've destroyed every single bloody tree in this country. And with, you know, hundreds of trees that are 200 years old, and we'll put a shrub there and say, call it a tree now. You know, this, this breaks my heart. You know, I've always lived in this country, and I would like to still think that I've got some hope in this country. But what I see around me, do I blame politicians? Yes, partly. Do I blame the education system? Definitely. Do I blame parents? Probably. But you're talking about a tipping point. You mentioned back there. I mean, we know for a fact that the environment at one point is going to hit a tipping point. It's hit a hit tipping point, Trudy. It has hit. It's, forget it. Do you look around? Look around you. Just before I walked into the studio, there's this big, ugly, concrete building which has ruined the environment around you. And I'm sorry. It's not going to go away. You're not going to, no, no government will have the balls to come in the future and say, I'm going to destroy this compensate the owner, and instead I'm going to build a park. No, nobody's going to do it. But that's not very hopeful for the country. I'm not very hopeful. I am hopeful where it comes to certain civil rights. I think we've improved a lot. I would like to think some of the younger generation are seeing through this, but I don't know if I will live to see enough changes in this country. You can't keep applauding a politician who's, who was caught with his hand in the till. You can't applaud a member of your own party, even though he's talking rubbish about civil rights that you believe in. But then why are they applauded? Because surely anybody who's caught with their hand in the till should be publicly disgraced. But we're not doing it, are we? But why are we not doing it? Because people still look up to politicians. We had the churches before, we had the bishops before. They were the people we adored, we looked up to. We've now turned our politicians into our gods. I think it was good that the church lost some of its power. Um, don't get me wrong, I think the church remains um, a very important institution. It does a lot of good. Sadly, there were incidents which gave it a very bad name. And don't get me wrong, there are politicians who are trying to do good, but I've known too many politicians with people who got into politics with all the good intentions and they got sucked into the system. Because in private they will tell you something differently then. This is what pisses me off. And then you hear them on, give them a microphone and they will be telling me something very different to what they told me the previous day. So how do we dethrone that? You know, you call out a politician. If a politician screws up, you call them out. Or if they promise something they don't deliver, you call them out. Surely something like grey listing, where people have been caught with their hands in the till, or death of journalists, or these sorts of things, surely that should wake people up. It should, 
but it doesn't. It changes some people. I know some people are very angry with what happened in this country, but they're obviously disillusioned with the political class. And they will look at the government and say, oh, people are a bunch of crooks. And then they will go to the opposition and say, they don't inspire me. And then they say, oh, I won't vote for the Green Party because it's too small, my vote won't matter. Yet, come election time, we'll all vote the same way we did when, as we were kids. Why? Education, upbringing, political media, the system, the system. Trying to see how I can be diplomatic here. I don't know if I call it the power of incumbency. I, I need to think about this, Judy. You mentioned a few minutes ago about Malta joining the EU and you saw that as being a vision for Malta to broaden its horizons and to see a world outside. I get the feeling that Malta doesn't realise how much attention it is gaining internationally, how much people are aware of what's happening in this country. I think some people get it. Some people believe the politicians' rhetoric that we are being picked on. You know, it's a very easy strategy to sell to people that, oh, look at mighty Germany. They're bullying us into changing our, you know, systems. And look at, you know, Italy. They're trying to dump their migrants onto us. And that strategy works to a certain extent with a good number of people. So being a small country, I, I always say the size of our country is our advan- one of our advantages, but it's also one of our biggest problems. Can you see Malta moving forward or can you see it declining as we move on? I think we will decline a little bit more uh, before we can actually start crawling out. But it depends what we're talking about. The environment, game over. I, I don't have much hope on, on, on that. And because it's because of the size of the country. We, st- we simply cannot do anything. You cannot reclaim land that we've destroyed. I want to pick up on something that you've done. We've talked about hope for the country. We've talked about uh, the systemic billboard propaganda um, kind of society that we live in. Now, you were involved in recent protests against the restrictions still applied to the arts in Malta. I'm not going to ask you about whether you take the the arts seriously. That's self-evident. But did the protests make any difference? Can protests in Malta make any difference? Are you asking me as an editor or are you asking me as... I'm going to ask you as both. Okay. uh, No, I, I... I think protests are important. It's part of democracy. Um, the problem is they got bad press in, in, in the past. Uh, you know, we, we, even historically, even if you look at the way my own newspaper looks, sometimes treated protests, you know, people have a right to protest, to go out in the street and, and provided they do it civilly and provided they are not protesting to promote hatred or whatever. But I think protests um, do send a message, and I think the protests have become more important than ever, especially with the use of social media and all that. You can be just a group of six people, and it can be very effective. So where it comes to the artists, we had this two-minute interview with Edward Merchia, with the actor Edward Merchia, and then the school principal, and that was one of the most viewed videos of all times on, on Times of Malta. 
simply because he was blunt, he explained it, and he, you know, he was angry. Whoa, whoa, hang on a second. That was one of the most viewed vid- videos of all time. I would, let's just say in the last year, it goes on our top five. There were about, last count, 120,000, 110,000. Uh, I, I didn't check, I checked last week uh, with Edward Mercia talking, you know, saying how unfair the COVID rules were on the theatre sector. Now, we have written even editorially about this thing. Yes, they are unfair, simply because where it comes to the theatre environment especially, you know, it's all very controlled. And there are people sitting at a distance, everyone's being checked on the way in. I'm not talking about opening to big parties and crowds. I think it's too early to do that. But I think the reason the authorities did that is because it treats the arts industry with, I wouldn't say disdain, but traditionally, you know, the artists were just a bunch of, you know. Would you want to see more of this protest? Do you want to see more people speaking in public more? We have a problem in Malta because we complain about everything under the sun. And uh, it really bothers me sometimes that we don't, we just see the negative. Now, this contradicts a bit of what, what I was saying about losing hope and all that, because I still think there are some things that are still going for this place. But what surprises me are the sheer number of people who contact us daily. Today, I, I got about three phone calls myself of people telling me, you know, legitimately protesting about something. But the first thing they told me is that I will tell you the story, but only if you promise not to publish my name. So it is always about getting the journalists to front the story, to publish the story, because, you know, but what we do is reflecting what people are telling us. It's unbelievable how people are scared of, of uh, recriminations, of, of, of being you know, told off or being sacked from their jobs or transferred from their jobs and all that. And I think some of it might be justified, but some of this, this self-imposed censorship really angers me. Speak out. If you have a problem, say it's wrong and be public about it. Because you know what? The person next to you might be encouraged by what you're saying. Very soon you might have a chorus of disapproval. But you just mentioned there something that really hit home with me, is that you said your role as, as a journalist, your role as, as editor-in-chief, it can be exhausting. So why do you keep doing it? Because I believe journalism sometimes is the only hope we have in this country. Because when you resort to some of the authorities and when you call out for justice and it's not being given to you, even though you deserve it, even though you have a right to go to the police and make a file a police report and it's actually being acted upon and it isn't. You know, if you go to court and your case keeps being either dismissed, postponed or forgotten, then sometimes the only hope is to actually go to the media and speak about it. But people remain scared and for some reason people are still scared to speak out. And I keep saying speak out because it is the media is a very important pillar of our democracy. And if someone has got a situation whereby they are in that frustration that you're talking about, they can come to you and you can handle it in the best way possible. Yes. I mean, if need be, we'll, we'll hide someone's identity. You know, you don't even, we don't even need to expose what you do. The, 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 a lot of people are leaving it down to the job of the journalist. And we bring this right the way back, full circle, to where we started talking about your role as a journalist and your career as a journalist. What story can you think of now, right now, that's been a, 
a story that so you have broken or you've reported on that stays with you to this day? Uh, there are different stories, um, uh, Jody, but I think if we go to our recent history, I, I think our work on the Daphne Caruana Galizia murder case, it will go down in history as a very important moment for journalism. I can't say certain things, but what I can say is that we have a couple of very brave journalists who did incredible things to expose the muck, the attempted cover-ups that went on to try to cover, to cover them for the people who were behind, allegedly behind the murder. Uh, and that, I think, is a very proud moment for, for journalism in, in, in Malta. We took risks. Um, we met with people who finally stood up and said, we will talk to you. And I don't mind those people saying, don't quote us, don't do this and all that. And we, were, we took the flag for it. But that was one moment where we really pushed it because I, as editor, felt very angry when I started discovering certain things that were happening behind the scenes. And I felt I had a duty to get personally involved. And I did get personally involved. I had meetings with people in odd places and odd times of the day to try to understand what was really going on. Are there elements of that story which you're obviously very, very proud of? Are there elements of that that you've had to make a judgment call on not reporting on? Uh, yes, uh, it still goes on till this day almost. I can say this, I guess. You know, there were times when I'm, our own lawyers told me, don't run the story because you risk getting sued. And I ran the story. And not only did I not get sued, but I, it brought about changes. It brought changes in, in, in uh, the way the police investigations were going. It brought changes in public perceptions. It sparked public protests. I think it was a risky call. I mean, I've had lots of sleepless nights since then. And I think it was the right call. Did I trip up along the way? Yes, I did. Um, I made mistakes. But I think on the whole, especially where it comes to Daphne's uh, murder investigation, I think we've really brought about some change in the way the story is gone. And I think some people who are now facing justice might still be walking around if it wasn't for the times of Malta. That is an incredible legacy. If you just look at what's been going on, I would say in the last couple of years, the stories that our journalists broke and people have had to resign, people have been arrested and the police were pushed to act in a particular way because of what our journalists wrote. So many, so many, and the list goes on. Are we at the end of the, the exposing of the, of the stories? Are we at the end of what we can expect to happen? Uh, I can't answer that question. <laughs> I would like to answer that question. I'll let you off on that one then. I, 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 no, I can't say certain things. But I mean, there is a fight going on. And this is a daily battle we have to fight. Because if you really believe in the truth, then you really need to fight for it. And it is not easy making these calls. Well, you've just mentioned sleepless nights and you've also mentioned trolls. Have you ever felt yourself that you were in danger? Yes, yes. Um, there was a time, I, I go back a number of years, about 15 years ago, when there was the migration issue. I am unashamedly fight for migrant rights. Uh, we have a big problem with racism in Malta. Um, I had witnessed and in 2005, I believe, uh, that famous incident where a group of migrants protesting 
peacefully, because I was there, and who were beaten to a pulp by the soldiers. And because I was honest in my reporting, I faced the consequences. And it was the time when they were threat threatening journalists. They tried to torch my car, and then I ended up with police outside my door. There were right-wingers who were targeting me. And it happened very recently with the Daphne case. Uh, yes, I, I, I was told by somebody in government, actually. And it was very good of this particular politician who told me, you need to get police protection. And I know what I'm talking about. And you get it for yourself and for two of your journalists. I had to, I had to seek police protection because we're dealing here with some of the worst criminals mortals have ever seen. That's a huge price to pay. Are you positive for the outcome of this case? I have to be because it's, it's uh, unless we resolve this case, it's going to remain a blotch through our lifetime. And, uh, and it's never going to go away, but at least we can say we've done something about it. It's been an absolute inspiration talking to you and discussing these. I have one last question that I'm going to ask you. Complete change of topic, and I promise that I would. Whiskey. Favourite whiskey. <sighs> okay, where do I start? There's a uh, Nikka coffee grain, which is obviously a lovely whiskey. Um, and then there is this amazing single malt with the most unpronounceable name. I think it's called Ochentorschen. Does, it make sense? Does, does that make sense? You know, we've, this, the day we've taken some really, really tough decisions, you know, you can just resort to a thought of your favourite single malt in the evening. And I think that's my only poison. It's just what the doctor ordered. And that, Herman Gregg, is what makes you fabulous. Thank you. Thank you so <laughs> much for being on the interview. Thank you for sharing all of these thoughts. It's been incredibly inspiring and powerful. Thank you. Thank you.